Welcome back to the Global Inquirer and to part two of our Ukraine war analysis. I'll be speaking with Reese Kaplan about Finland's ascension to NATO and the war's future outlook. Recently, Finland joined the NATO alliance. What has been the primary outcome of Finland's ascension to NATO? Well, we'll take a step back here and say that, just to clarify, Finland joining NATO, obviously a direct consequence of this war. And it's not necessarily important strategically. It's not like the Finnish army is this massive existential threat. But it falls into the ideology and the justification that the government has used for joining this war. And it's one that a lot of academics find to be a fair argument and that NATO was encroaching on Russia and that that is a security risk, especially those more in the realist camp. And so this, along with the fact that Ukraine put up resistance initially and the war is still going on, it raises the stakes and that a defeat, especially with Finland joining NATO on top of the other things that we've seen, will be crushing for Russia. I mean, it's already a form of defeat that they have taken this long to take Ukraine and there's no end in sight. And that by simply invading, you lose the ability to cooperate. It's also important to consider that the idea of the EU or NATO getting Ukraine and Ukraine leaving Russia is a humiliation. This is a piece of territory that has a long-standing history with Russia. Under the Russian Empire, as a Soviet Socialist Republic in the USSR, the second largest after Russia itself, you lose something even though you've already lost that sort of empire. The experience of war changes the calculus on all sides, changes the goals on all sides, certainly changes the stakes. And for Russia, it has really raised the stakes, both internationally and also domestically, right? Uh, I mentioned that I see defeat as being the more realistic paradigm than peace or settlement. Well, a defeat in this war would be crushing for Russia, right? Uh, And what we're seeing now is, to be fair, a form of defeat, right? To the extent that the goal was to take over Ukraine, and that's absolutely what Russia attempted in the early days of the invasion, right? They landed outside of Kiev and marched on the capital and hoped that the Ukrainian state would collapse. And that didn't happen. That was an incredible military loss. It was a huge loss of face. But if this continues, right, even if the current state of affairs continues, it's very hard to see how Russia can extricate itself from this war. Because, as you said, you lose so much by invading. Certainly, you lose any possibility of goodwill, cooperation. People who had been sympathetic, if not to Russia, then towards alliance with Russia, they are no longer sympathetic, right? For one thing, they have experienced what occupation looks like. That is actually, as a historian, right, I think of the parallel to Eastern Europe post-World War II. Uh, There was a lot of support for the Soviet Union after World War II in countries like Czechoslovakia, in uh, even in places like, like Poland, Eastern Germany, where the Soviets were, to many people, liberators, right? They came through, they took the Nazis out, they were this ascendant world power. There was genuine support, there was genuine enthusiasm. 
But that changes once the liberators become occupiers, once the armies stay, once they start to impose their control, all of a sudden that notion, right, of brotherly love with the Russians, that is a lot harder to imagine when they are on your territory. The same is playing out today in Ukraine. So there's that side of the story. But there's also the really important domestic component for Russia, where invading, taking this radical step has really raised the stakes for Putin, for the Russian regime, because to my mind, at least, there is no clear end game. You can't walk away from this and pretend it never happened, right? So much of the media campaign that we mentioned earlier is aimed at saying this is not a war. It's a special military operation, but it's a military operation that has gone on for 14 months and longer, right? It has led to thousands of Russian deaths. It has led to enormous economic consequences. To just kind of wash your hands of it and walk away is really tough. And I mentioned the reality of Russia as an empire, right? And this kind of imperial roots. Well, this also, I think, has parallels to the imperial experience. I think when we think about this conflict, some of the ways that we should, right, some of the parallels that come to mind are colonial wars of independence, uh, wars like the Algerian War against France, the Portuguese colonies fighting for independence in the 50s and 60s. Those colonial wars are ones that almost every European country fought in the wake of World War II and that every European country lost. And when it lost those wars, the effects were fundamental. You know, France had a coup d'etat in 1958, a popular, I won't say quite a popular revolution, but certainly a, a regime coup, because the idea of losing Algeria was such a blow to the state, to the French identity, to everything. And I think Russia faces a similar challenge. This is something that uh, I always tell my students, right? We talk about empire as though it's something that you have. Right? We kind of say, well, France had an empire, Britain had an empire. I don't think that gets it right, because an empire is not something you have, it's something you are. Right? You are an empire. You are the French empire, the British empire. And when you lose that empire, it changes everything about you. It changes your sense of self. It changes your position in the world. It usually, almost always, changes the regime. And the Soviet Union, again, is sort of exhibit A, right? Uh, part of the story of the Soviet collapse was the attempt to give up the Eastern European Empire voluntarily. This was part of Gorbachev's reforms in the late 1980s. He kind of said, look, to make communism work in Russia, in the Soviet Union, we have to get rid of these satellites that have become a drain on resources that we have to prop up that we have to pacify whenever they have an uprising. But the trouble for him was that you can't just get rid of an empire. Once Eastern European states were allowed to go their own way, once the Soviet Union said, in effect, you're on your own, they had revolutions, right? 1989 was the direct consequence of Gorbachev's efforts, but it also boomeranged back to the USSR, 
because then Soviet republics started looking at what's happening in Poland, what's happening in Hungary, and started to say, why not us? Right? Ukraine was right at the forefront. There's a powerful independence movement in Ukraine, a country that shares this long history with, with Poland, right? certainly Western Ukraine had long been part of Poland. They're looking across the border and saying, why not us? And part of that dynamic, the sort of fall of dominoes, that's a major factor that leads to the Soviet collapse. And of course, it's a different situation now. Ukraine is independent. But from the Russian perspective, there is this sense that it should be in the Russian orbit, that it is Russian territory on some essential basic level, right? And losing that, actually not having Ukraine be in Russia's orbit, having it be in the EU, in NATO, right? Anything like that is an existential challenge for Russia because then you have lost an empire, you have suffered a humiliation. Certainly that leads to, I think, real domestic instability. And that's kind of the lesson of colonial empires, right? Defeat on the battlefield in the colonies tends to lead to defeat for the regime at home. And on top of that, there's the fact that you weren't picked and that Ukraine had a choice to choose you or the West and they didn't choose you. And that's something that's further traumatic for a population in which a lot of the people, especially those who are a little bit older, lived through the fall of the Soviet Union and had to deal with the political and economic consequences and the fear and the loss of prestige that that involved. It seems like this war was driven out of fear of losing something with no clear way of how to gain anything. And with that in mind, does Russia is Russia set back further than it was in the beginning as a result of Finland joining NATO, which shares a large border with Russia and its borders aren't very far from St. Petersburg? Yeah, so that's one of the recent developments, right? And certainly a direct consequence of the war. We had not seen NATO enlargement for a while, and uh, here it is, here's back. I think this is maybe like the war in itself, right? Not necessarily important strategically. In other words, Finland is not a great army. It's not as though it really bolsters the NATO alliance. It's also not, a, it's not an obvious target for Putin, for Russia. I, you know, the Soviet Union tried to fight a war against Finland in 1939, and that did not go well. And it's just, there's no immediate reason to see Russia push towards Finland. So joining NATO, I don't think that kind of changes the calculus, right? It doesn't, in, in, or at least what I mean by that is it doesn't change pragmatic steps. What it does do is I think it raises the stakes on those existential questions on both sides, right? To the extent that this is a war of ideology, well, certainly that ideology is driven into hyperdrive by Finland joining because that was the explicit stated rationale for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that NATO was right there, that Ukraine was a NATO puppet, that this posed a fundamental threat to Russia. Well, Finland is also on Russia's doorstep, right? And NATO is expanding. And that's what state media has been saying long before this war started, that we are being encircled, that we are under attack, that the West is out to get us. Certainly, Finland joining plays into all that. So I think, you know, it doesn't change the tactics on the ground. 
in the near term, it's not as though Putin had planned an invasion of Helsinki and now won't dare do it. But it's certainly, yeah, it just raises the temperature because that's one of the things about ideology, right? It's a very effective tool to mobilize, to inspire, to get people to do what you want. But it is also, it has a life of its own, right? It's real, it's tangible. It's not just a tool that you can use. And once you set this into motion, once you start talking about existential threats, once you paint this picture of a world out to get us, again, it's hard to walk away and it's hard to de-escalate. And yes, Finland's addition to NATO, it definitely escalates the rhetoric, but I do think it escalates this Russian sense of existential fear that's setting in for sure. So going on top of that, when we see Finland joining NATO, it doesn't change pragmatic steps, but it raises the stakes on the existential questions because ultimately this is a war of ideology and it's only pushed further into hyperdrive by Finland joining NATO. Because as I've said, the stated rationale was the concern over NATO expansion, the fact that the strongest military alliance in the history of the world is getting closer to your country and they haven't asked you to join, so it's probably pointing its power at you. So it does raise the temperature now that you have yet another country that already was in Western orbit, whereas Ukraine was just going to flip or at least further tilt. But it, it does raise the temperature and it makes it harder to de-escalate and it only serves to escalate the Russian sense of existential fear. It does fit Putin's narrative that this is what would happen in Ukraine if we didn't invade. So it's a sort of justification, but I think it's important to caveat that for the West, this is a sort of win. And we're going to talk about this later. And that instead of disintegrating, NATO is growing. And I think that's an important gain for the West, um, despite the fact that it does potentially pose risks when we calculate the Russian perspective. This is exactly what Putin had said would happen in Ukraine if not for the special military operation, right? The narrative has always been, it's a Western puppet. They're just about, you know, they will be a NATO base soon, or they are a NATO base. Finland is a NATO base. It's there, right? Um, it's, again, that's not really a change in course. Finland has always had this orientation and the, a close alliance, um, but it absolutely feeds the narrative. But even though it's feeding the narrative, it kind of suggests that the operation is failing and that NATO is expanding despite the action. It's an interesting question because it gets back to this question of goals, right? And the notion of success and failure. I think you can see it as a setback in the sense that yes, right, NATO is, is on the attack. But if your goal is to be a systemic alternative to the West, if your goal is to really beat NATO back, right? Then you want it to come, right? You want it to, uh, you know that it's going to attack. You've been saying for decades, they're coming to attack. And that sense kind of, it doesn't change anything. It just makes it real. It kind of, uh, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense where Putin has long said NATO is coming. Here it is, NATO is coming. It does mean, right, I think that kind of reduces the, the possibility of a settlement of some kind of resolution. And it just, it raises the stakes where if NATO's coming, uh, 
there is going to be a lot of pressure, domestic pressure, right, to respond, to somehow account for this. Uh, I do think, right, it, it raises the possibility of some kind of global catastrophe um, because it helps to pin Russia in a corner. The idea of raising stakes and that it fits into the narrative is concerning. And the idea of putting Russia in a corner is, especially a country with tons of nuclear weapons, is rather concerning. It is scary and it is concerning. And I think, you know, um, maybe the flip side of that or, or the, uh, the counterpart to that is that this war, I think, is also maybe more existential for the West than we imagine, right? And I don't just mean that in terms of nuclear war. That certainly hangs over the conflict. In many ways, we're used to living with that. We have for 80 years, but of course, it does feel more acute at the moment. What I mean more is, you know, this war in Ukraine, is, as I argued earlier, I don't think it's only about Ukraine. And one of the goals of the war is to put pressure on the Western alliance, right? In a sense, so much of this invasion is calculated to pick at all the sore points and fault lines in Western societies, right? Uh, one effect of the war has been massive refugee flows. Well, that's been a long-standing issue in the European Union, in the US, right? People are coming, the sense of, of uh, being overwhelmed by migration, by new people coming in, this war does that, right? Right on that pressure point, just push, push, push. Another one, prices, uh, so many, Western elections, right, are about inflation, gas prices, oil. Yeah, Ukraine, right there, right? Heating, uh, cost ballooning, also in the news this week, right? Uh, Ukraine agricultural imports being blocked in uh, countries like Poland and Hungary against EU law. So there's this economic effect of the war that, again, very consciously designed to exacerbate tensions. And so is international cooperation. That's kind of part of what we're seeing in this uh, grain export question today. Poland and Hungary have sort of unilaterally said, we will ban the import of Ukrainian products. And in principle, that's a decision that is handled in Brussels. That's not for member states to make. That's something for the EU to set as a whole. Poland has said we don't care about that, right? And certainly we've seen some of these tensions come up in NATO. We've seen it come up between the U.S. and its allies. This war, right, is designed to test how coherent the West is. And this is where I think if Russia is able to achieve victory on the battlefield, no, that's a very high bar, right? But, you know, let's say it manages to accomplish what it set out to do, which was to occupy at least most of Ukraine, right? At least Kiev, we know they tried that. If it can do that now, after all the resistance that Western allies have put up, all the support, not massive, but longstanding that they have offered to Ukraine, if Russia can do that now, I think that does perhaps really kind of fracture the notion of the West, right? This notion of a liberal democratic international order. If Western powers are willing to accept a loss of Ukraine, if they're willing to say we won't defend or we will look the other way, 
that changes the international system. That means we are now living in a very different world, which is certainly on the table, right? Our world is, is changing. The post-Cold War order is rapidly changing. So it's not far-fetched, but I do think it is, in that sense, kind of existential, right? If Russia wins in Ukraine, the West, this notion that we have, this kind of abstract concept, it's not what it was, right? It won't be the West in the same way. So I think, right, the stakes we said, the stakes are high for Russia. They're obviously sky high for Ukraine, but I think they're also higher for us than we might think. Thanks for showing us that this is still really an uncertain conflict, but it could have numerous um, long-term implications for not only Russia, but the West as well. You cited a quote by Zelensky trying to, quote-unquote, sell Americans on the war. How realistic was his perspective? Well, just to do a recap on what he said, I'm not going to read out the whole quote because... I feel like it'd be a little bit painful. It's an awfully long quote, but essentially he is suggesting and has suggested the typical argument of, you know, if we go down, it's you next. But obviously Russia is not on the border of the United States with the exception of remote parts of Siberia and Alaska. Essentially saying that if Putin wins in Ukraine, he's going to invade the Baltic states and then NATO is going to be dragged into World War III. And Americans are going to have to fight and die, so you might as well support me now so that you don't have to get to that step. And maybe that's a fair point, but I think what's important to remember is that Russia is not going to just attack NATO if NATO is clearly going to abide by Article 5. Because Russia wants security not to act tough and have themselves annihilated, which is what the risk is if you take on NATO. So what I think is an important counterpoint to that is in a world where Russia is invading the Baltic states is a world where NATO is not what it is today. Of course, that's what Zelensky will say, right? That's kind of the only weapon he has is to say, uh, after us, it's you. That's maybe his, his best argument. I do think, right, to your question, is it realistic? I think it's a lot more realistic now than when the war started. Not so much because Russia's calculus has changed, but because of what victory in Ukraine would mean now, right? When the war started, a lot of people assumed it would be over soon, right? There was this kind of consensus that, of course, Russia would rule Ukraine, and they sure seem close to doing it, right? And they landed in Kiev. And one can actually see why Putin thought it could work, because he effectively did it in 2014, right? He took over the Crimea, that's a peninsula the size of Maryland, and the Ukrainian army stood down, and the West said, tisk tisk, and slapped Russia on the wrist, and nothing happened, right? So there was a lot of talk within Russian circles of power that once they took over Kiev, the country would collapse, Ukrainians would go over to the Russian side. There was a lot of misunderstandings about how Ukraine worked, which, again, has to do with this ideology that the Kremlin has been putting forth and also taking in. And so I do think that was kind of the initial sense, right? We will take over Ukraine. And that was a sense that lots of people in the West shared. And in that context, right, it was not so hard to imagine 
Putin being able to take over at least a large chunk of Ukraine, and then saying, well, I won't go further. I won't go to Poland. I won't go to the Baltics. Now that this war has gone on as long as it has, now that the West has been involved in the war the way it has, right? And make no mistake, right? The West is fighting on the Ukrainian side, right? They've drawn a line in the sand of saying we won't send soldiers, but we'll send equipment, we'll send tanks, we'll send warplanes. As far as the Russians are concerned, right? Those are American weapons that are killing Russians. So yeah, they're in the war. If Ukraine loses now, you know, if the kind of original goal of Russian control of Kiev and beyond comes to pass, I think that would reflect such a change in international affairs. It would reflect such a collapse of Western structures that that really might embolden Putin to push off, right? And I think that's kind of maybe where Zelensky's argument starts to fall apart, where he says, um, as you read out, then the U.S. will have to send their sons and daughters. And the truth is, we don't know, right? Uh, sure, by the letter of the law, yes, they've signed the treaty, mutual defense. We will support Lithuania if it's attacked. We've had a former president question that. We've had presidential candidates running now question that. It's far from a foregone conclusion that the U.S. will, or any NATO state, will live up to its obligations. Because I think in this scenario where this comes to pass, in the scenario where Russia feels emboldened to a, a attack, let's say, a Lithuania, I think that's meant that the Western alliance has crumbled to an extent where we can't count on NATO obligations still holding up. If Russia suddenly rolls through Ukraine and NATO is falling apart because we have lost despite committing lots of resources and to a certain extent suffering, you have gas rationing in Europe. If you lose after that, is NATO gonna be in a position to be like, yes, if Russia invades Latvia or Estonia or Lithuania, we're going all out in a major war. Just because it's written on paper doesn't mean that we have to do it. So you wonder if, if things fail that the U.S. and other countries just won't follow the agreements that they've signed on to if it doesn't serve their interests. So it's certainly possible that Putin might say NATO's not going to defend the Baltic states because it's not at all in their interest to do so. And then we're suddenly in a world where Russia invades the Baltic states. NATO says, we don't care. And then what is NATO if it is all of a sudden not defending NATO territory? Obviously, Biden has said that the U.S. is committed to defending every inch of NATO territory, but things change. That was Reese Kaplan. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And also thank you to Professor Konakovich for interviewing with me before I interviewed with you. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. 